0: We're gonna be really good at this. Welcome back to another knock on podcast. I'm not even gonna like start out the right way. So I've, I forgot my podcast microphone um, at the line at the airport. So some, some TSA guy has a really good podcast microphone. I ended up having to Amazon another one next to air to my hotel room. Because I'm in Tucson, Arizona, I'm here at the Boone and Crockett annual meeting. Um, as many of you know, I'm a firm believer in trying to always give back to something that you know that that provides for you. And the outdoors has always provided so much for me. And, and I really wanted to give back to to the outdoors and conservation and utilize my my platform, I guess, as a media person to really spread a positive message about. Conservation, the Boone and Crockett Club was a no brainer, and thankfully I was um, accepted and inducted in last year. So I'm here with a good buddy of mine. Um, I'm gonna let him introduce himself, but uh, Bronson has some really cool stuff to talk about. And really, the reason why we came in here and started this podcast was because you're asking me about starting your own podcast on some really important subjects that you have and sharing an extensive amount of knowledge and research that you have. So I just said, man, before you start talking, let's just go to my room, turn a microphone on, and you'll see just how easy it is to do a podcast. So uh, Bronson, I'm gonna
1: let you tell people what your credentials are, and then let's uh, get on some cool subjects. Sounds great. Thank you, John, for having me. My name's Bronson Strickland. I'm an associate professor, and I work for the Mississippi State University Extension Service. And so my job, uh, for the most part, entails research and outreach. So my job's a little bit different than your typical professor, in that my classroom is not indoors with college students. My job's outdoors uh, with landowners and sportsmen and things like that. And, and within my job, I get to research uh, hot topics. Uh, the two big hot topics in Mississippi, just like a lot in the southeast, are uh, whitetail deer, whitetail deer management, uh, and then hogs, hog control. And so we're engaged with research on both of those I right now, think, and that dominates my time, and I love it. I think there's more hot topics in Mississippi,
0: including crappies, <laughs> ducks, <laughs> like when it comes, to, Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm... Uh, for those of you who don't know i was actually i kind of raised as a child in the uh, mississippi delta Uh, a lot of my family is still from mississippi a lot of my family's in natchez mississippi and uh man mississippi has never got out of my blood i'm doing what i'm doing right now because um my grandpa and my uncle who's who lived in natchez um Pretty much took me. My grandpa literally took me under his wing. Took me turkey hunting when I was eight years old. I sat under his arms while he shot a wild turkey and was just eat up from the outdoors ever since then. And just really, um, you know, took part in the heritage of a lot of the people in the South. And that's you know, putting venison on the table, putting ducks or geese on the table, or, or uh, you know, putting turkeys on the table. And you know everything that I have, and the whole reason I'm able to talk to all of you out there right now really came from, came from what I started in Mississippi, and that was a passion for the outdoors. And uh, one thing's for sure, you can normally always, uh, you can normally always tell when there's a Mississippi voice in the room, no different than if you can tell if there's a guy from Jersey or a guy mm, from Texas or Boston. Yep. Mm. Yep. Exactly. So um we got on some pretty cool subjects because of your expertise with hogs and deer these are obviously two really really critical topics back when i started hunting down there there wasn't hogs yet and actually my family's place uh, is just south of natchez and hogs moved into that whole area probably four to five years ago and it really he just got a picture of a hog on a game mm-hmm. camera. I remember my uncle saying, "Hey, we got a picture of a hog down there in the swamp." And right away from my experience in Texas and Florida and everywhere else where I've where I've really shot a lot of pigs, I kind of told him I said, "Man, that's going to turn into a problem quick because the terrain in some of those, you know, swampy bogs down there in Mississippi
1: is prime time hog habitat. It's hog heaven." Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one thing, I'm sorry to hear that uh, for, your, for your family, but that's what we hear all the time, yep. all the time for the past 10 years. Uh, when I took this job, I really didn't have any training. I had hog hunted before. Uh, I did a lot of my graduate training in Texas where of course you interact with, with wild hogs, but that was not going to be part of my program. It was just all gonna be white-tailed deer research and outreach related with that. But the phone started ringing. And extension county agents called me and say, hey, we've got a hog problem. We need a program. We need some educational efforts. So I really jumped in uh, and tried to learn about it. And the, the story you mentioned is, is so common that they go years and years and years, don't see a hog, don't know anything about it, and then they get them. The mistake that a lot of people make is not acting at that point because you know you've interacted with them before, they're very, very prolific. And so what I like to tell landowners and people is that um, if you think a deer herd can increase really quickly, you can go from having a few deer to too many deer, just think of a mammal that can increase at a rate four times that. So litter size three times of what a deer litter size is. Reproducing more often, reproducing sooner in life. And so under uh, typical conditions, a population can double or more every single year what um, for a lifespan of a typical
0: hog how many would a female how many what, ta- how, what what would what would be the offspring production of a female hog that made
1: it through her lifespan what would that be at um, it would depend on the lifespan right, right. so it's yeah. the hunted population or natural but let look at it like an annual rate yeah uh, all the studies have demonstrated that your typical litter size is going to be six to eight Yep. but us biologist nerds we we don't really care as much about litter size we we use what's called recruitment what recruitment is is how many of those offspring are recruited into the breeding population okay which for hogs is about six months or eight months so most studies demonstrate that it's about four so every sow of breeding age within one year is going to recruit four and then 6 to 8 months later all of those offspring that were sows they're going to be producing four. Jesus. And so the it, it multiplies very 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 quickly. Literally a virus. Yeah. It's it, at a virus rate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's that is substantial. You know, I think a lot of times landowners make the mistake of just kind of being excited to be able to have a hog to hunt. You know, oh yeah, we might get to shoot a couple of hogs, it'd be fun to have some hogs here so you know, we have something to shoot during the off season.
1: Everybody thinks that. Eh. (laughs) And absolutely wrong. And then five years later, it's out of control. Yep. And then even now I'm not even talking about if you're a farmer where you're making your money off of soybeans or corn or sorghum or things like that, they hate them from the get go. Right. But you know, Mississippi, just like a lot of places, you know, you're talking about 90% of the, the land is privately owned and leased and hunted. And so especially hunters, man, this is going to be pretty cool. We're going to have some hogs running around here. We've got something we can hunt year-round. And then three or four years later, they're sick of them because they can't get a food plot up anymore. Um, Roads can be destroyed. I mean, the rooting behavior just is is awful. Looks like a rototiller. Uh, Looks like a rototiller. And then we're seeing now competition. So you start thinking about what does a hog eat? Well, when you cut a, un- unzip a hog's stomach, which we do a lot now, yeah. um, about half of what they put in their mouth is what goes into a deer's mouth, yeah. or a turkey's mouth, or a squirrel's mouth, or something like that. So at certain times of the year, especially in the fall, uh, it is literally about 50% dietary overlap. And most of that, of course, is coming from mast or acorns. Yeah. And you've probably seen, if there's some isolated resource uh, on a food plot, whether it be under an acorn tree, who wins the hog does the hog always wins yeah and so deer are automatically relegated to eating uh, less quality food they're pushed to the boundaries and so e- even in terms of space they can't utilize the areas they want to utilize because hogs are there what about the for the other half how
0: much of that would be like usable vegetation or potentially usable vegetation because a lot of times when they're rooting, they're liking the, the fresh undergrowth, the fresh bulbs. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, in a food plot, it'd be just a no-brainer. They're obviously eating something. But I'm talking more so about true forest vegetation. A lot of the undergrowth that would start, how which would eventually be browse for deer. Right. How much of that other half of that that's
1: in their stomach would be things that would turn into to true browse we're lucky on that front. Now, the things that that go in their uh, stomach above ground are going to be mostly what things that overlap with deer. Okay. All right. So it is going to be browse. It's going to be blackberry, uh, both the forage and the fruit. It's going to be the acorns. It's going to be all that type of lush, uh, what we call broadleaf plants, ragweed, things like that the deer are going to eat. But a significant part of a hog's diet, remember, is below ground. Right. And so it's going to be the roots or the tubers. It's going to be earthworms. It's going to be, we unzipped a pig the other day, and we really didn't know what we had at first. We pulled out handfuls of these. Like, what is that? Rinse them off, and, and it's little uh, uh, mussels, little freshwater oh, mussels. Oh, really? Like yeah. the actual shells and all? Or they oh, there? yeah. Oh, there wow. must have been 70 or 80 of them. Uh, a colleague unzipped one, and there was uh, almost 50 frogs. So it had literally wow. rooted around the edge of a pond, and at the time of the year where the, 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 the frogs kind of buried themselves you know, yep. in wintertime and just found every one of them and rooted up. Wow. And, and ate them all, so they're not limited by diet. So that's another thing where they out-compete our native wildlife, is there's really nothing that limits them. They grow in, in arid South Texas, yep. right? They grow in Florida, they grow in Mississippi, they're growing now in Saskatchewan. There's Wild? wild absolutely
0: well i guess i knew there were some in alberta i believe but up in those areas are they really limited to where they've made trails though with the snow i mean they pretty much have to plow a trail and stay on it then
1: yeah and and you're out of my zone now (laughs) you're way north of mississippi there um but from the, the people i work with say they are they they didn't think hogs, uh, yeah, in in Saskatchewan and such areas, were going to be a big deal because they thought they were going to be limited by the cold weather. Like the adults may live, but they'll probably die out, and we don't think reproduction will be a problem because surely those little piglets can't live in this harsh environment. Well, they're called Russian boars. Where did they evolve? <laughs> yeah, Russia, yeah. Eurasia, and so they started putting out trail cameras and noticed. Well, I'll be dang, they're reproducing just fine up here.
0: I heard from um, my good buddy, Clay. He has a a beautiful place down in, his family has a beautiful place down in Oklahoma. And actually, I was down there hunting with him, and my deer hunting just kept getting foiled by hogs coming through. And uh, eventually, I just... At first, I wasn't shooting when the hogs would come through. I was just kind of hoping that they would move through Mm -hmm. so that I would still have a chance at seeing deer. Um, But by that third day, I'm like, the best thing I can do is as soon as I get one shot to just make a shot and hope that they get the heck out of there um, to not wreck my deer hunting. But, you know, some some of the hogs that I've seen... Um, in those areas, if they can get their snout in something, their power is like, of how, their ability to get in something or under something or through something is mind-blowing. Yeah, nothing else is like it except
1: for uh, a black bear. For actually it, figuring it out, yeah, are you saying? For yeah, like brain in terms capacity? of uh, getting into something. Yeah. And here, here's why I say that so one of the big research topics right now are toxicants what's some type of bait that we can deliver yeah you know, what's a new tool in the toolbox we yep. trap right now and in some places your aerial gun well, what about a toxicant and um, so we have to be concerned about, even if you develop the right toxicant, there's always some other critter that's gonna eat it. So you try to make it real specific for your target animal, um, but there's always something else that'll get in it. So the next level of protection is, can we develop a delivery device that a deer can't get into, a raccoon can't get into? And um, so you make these feeding devices and a hog is one of the few animals because they have so much strength in their neck yeah, and their and jowls. that they can wiggle their nose down under something that's spring-loaded and lift it up and access the feed. Oh yeah, okay. But the only other animal you have to worry about if you're in the range of black bear is a black bear. Yeah, that was why that came up.
0: Which there are in Mississippi. There are in Mississippi yeah. in
1: Arkansas and Missouri and Louisiana. Yeah, there's
0: one. There's one that uh, that's down on our family's place down there. Um, but yeah, I mean. You would think. Well, I wouldn't think that a that a hog would have like the brain capacity of like raccoons are incredibly crafty, right? Mm-hmm. Crows would mm-hmm. be incredibly crafty. Bear, bear, are very um, persistent. I don't know if they would have the craft. They just have the strength and the persistence. Like if they know it's in there, they just like Arnold Schwarzenegger their way in. But, I think they're pretty crafty. Yeah. Yeah, and they, yeah, they are. I've watched some on bear baits and stuff, you know, try to get a beaver out of a beaver cage and stuff, Mm -hmm. and they can be very crafty with that. But um, I've just been fascinated at some of the size holes that are in a fence that a hog can figure out how to get through, like even, you know, if it's not hog wire or the the extent of what some of these ranchers have to do in order to keep hogs out of, like, their cattle feeding areas. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty impressive. Well, what uh, do you think the next solution then is? Is some type of a delivery device
1: for just trying to eradicate them through, I guess, poisoning. Really, I think that's going to be part of it. Yeah. Um, with, with anything, it won't be effective. Either the delivery system won't be effective. Someone won't do it right. Um, if pigs are persecuted, you know that it's real easy to trap a hog. When they're not persecuted yep. but then when the night vision stuff comes out they're getting shot at all the time they're harder to trap um so i think that's that's right now we have kind of three tiers we said it a moment ago it's it's aerial gunning in a landscape where you can do that yeah uh, that's the most effective way over a short period of time it's also expensive yeah yeah uh what most people do is you is trapping and I'm not talking about a little cage trap. I'm talking about a corral trap with a six foot or eight foot door yep. that may be 30 or 40 foot in diameter. Um, and then you start trapping, then then you start trapping females. And then you're trapping 20, 30, 40 at a time. I had a graduate student uh, several months ago, he caught 39 at, at one time. Wow. You start making an impact when you do that. Yeah. What's the brain capacity? Like, what's. If you were to rate the
0: knowledge level of a wild hog and relate it to well just relate it to people i mean how crafty i i think they're much smarter than what people give them i do too i mean i think that they they have their limitations they have their weaknesses but when it comes to like you said how they respond to just pressure and then if you factor in their ability to smell i mean i've seen i've seen hogs run away from tracks that are several days old where someone walked through and a
1: hog can pass it and you know you can really tell Mm -hmm. yeah so they've got a nose like a coyote so they've got a nose where they can smell something three foot underground um their brain the comparisons and i don't think there's really a really good way scientifically to quantify it yeah we can't give them a Te- SAT yeah. test or anything yeah, like that, yeah, but yep. when you, I, I, I think when you look at their behavior, it, you know I've always heard the comparison of, uh, you know, on the continuum of domestic dogs, there are some breeds of dogs that people say aren't the brightest in the world, and there's some that are really really sharp, like the collies. They have the ability to learn, right? Yep, better yep. than others. And I've always heard that pigs were more related to those, that they can adapt and learn and use that knowledge uh a lot more so than other animals where they actually learn from the experience and remember it yeah well that's pretty sweet what about
0: um so what's the range i mean for example if there's i know where i hunt um actually where i hunt with clay um down in oklahoma i went there first and hunted hogs and there's certain times of year where you can see hogs almost every morning or evening that you're out hunting but then there's other times of year where it's really hard to see them. Or, you know, and you can tell that the, just from the sign that Mm -hmm. there's times when they're really there, but then they also, they move around, like they may have to, they may have to go to a completely other side of the ranch before you might start to see fresh signs. So what
1: is their range? It, It all depends on what we broadly call habitat quality. And so for pigs, that's food and cover. And typically the shifts that you're describing, I would say it's either uh, some type of seasonal shift in food, and maybe it's uh, not natural food, maybe it will supplementally feed feed or something like that. But they're uh, usually either responding with their belly or they're responding to pressure. And then for a boar, you can add girlfriend in yep. there, you know, food, pressure, girlfriend. That pretty much explains where they go and what they do so for a sow there have been plenty of studies that have shown when uh there's good habitat good food they may spend their entire year in 300 acres yeah you've got some places like in the mississippi delta there's a lot of food but it's spread out and cover is actually limiting then um they may uh, we have a couple pigs that over a three month time it might be 5,000 acres we now if you add in a bore and he's looking for a girlfriend. He might do a fifteen-mile round round trip in twenty-four hours. Are you serious? Dead serious. A, a boar hog will cover fifteen miles in one day. Yeah, when you do the twenty. Yeah, yeah, when you do the going and then coming, all the area that he walked. So are you collar, you guys are collaring some hogs and
0: right tracking them. Mm-hmm. Fifteen miles in a day. Easy. That's crazy. So then, I guess the switch subjects. Um, unless you've got anything else like hog related, but when, when you and I talked earlier, we had spoke about travel mm-hmm. and that's kind of when I stopped you and said, I actually want to record this cause I'm fascinated. So let's talk about travel with deer because, um, the last few years where I hunt in Iowa, um, I actually, and actually this year, um there was a really big deer that i shot that kind of all of my followers nicknamed the veteran um no actually that was a different one we named that one was named six pack because it had it was just a perfect six by six but once i shot it and i did a live stream of the recovery um there was actually an abundance of neighbors that were kind of questioning whether or not i actually shot that deer on my place because they're like we have pictures this buck you know he's been here all the time and you know and and this was like five miles away Mm -hmm. so what is the typical range of a whitetail buck and let's maybe break it down into kind of the four quarters of the year because obviously those are all different phases of what that what a a whitetail is really going to be doing so I mean obviously January 1st to March they could be doing an extensive variance in range because they're trying to find food late season.
1: And still looking, at least in Mississippi, that time of year, they're still looking for does that could be an estrus. Yep, yep. yep.
0: That, that would probably be, for sure, a very late second cycle for us. Right. Probably, well, I know in Mississippi, I've always enjoyed hunting between Christmas and New Year's. That's oh, yeah. always like my prime time. But, um okay, well, let's just start there. Let's just say, well, let's... Let's just say for deer, post-post rut activity, right. yep. Yeah, like the okay. you know the second, the second estrus has come and gone. Deer bucks are back into a finding food and trying to reestablish some of their body weight and
1: that sort of thing. Okay. I mean, how do they range? It people get sick and tired of a biologist always saying it depends. Yep. But in reality, it, oh, does. Yeah. it depends. Yep. Um, So what's driving that, that time of year is his belly. So yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's post recovery. He's trying to uh, build tissue back. He's trying to build uh, fat, get fat back. And so it's gonna be around food sources. So it's wherever he can hang out and feel secure and not pressured. And wherever he can get all the nutrients that he needs um, probably also that time of year, he's going to be focused a lot on energy versus protein. Yep. So a lot of unharvested grain crops, yep. you know, like you see in Iowa. Corn and soybeans. Corn and soybeans, absolutely. Quick fuel. And so that may be, um, that. literally, he may hang out on 500 acres yep. during that time. And that fades right into springtime as well. And so if... Again, us biology people, we, we talk about distribution of resources or how homogenous or heterogeneous it is. Yep. Where are where cover patches and how far is a cover patch from a food patch? Yep. So the way that is configured on your hunting land or on your property, uh, that's going to have a lot to do with home range. So again, it may be a couple hundred acres or well, it let's may just, be 2,000 acres. Right. Let's just say um, standing corn is
0: a mile from where an actual cover is, like bedding cover, does a whitetail have any problem covering one mile? Not at all. In the morning, every morning, every evening? How much do you think they would, I mean, how much have you studied them to travel on,
1: on a daily feeding pattern? You know, I, I think on the average, well, first of all, they can do it, they gladly do it. Uh, the closer, the better though, Yeah. right, you know, because, a deer's decision model is how far do i need to go to satisfy the resources that i need and reduce my predation risk on the way right and so we even see in some cases where a deer may not go as far so say it has to go a mile to get to corn or soybeans but it could go 500 yards to get some less quality food. Yeah, but it's safe. Browse, it's but safe the whole time. Really? Either from humans or from the more they're exposed, the more coyotes or things like that can harass them.
0: So the studies have shown a whitetail will always put predation in front of consumption? Absolutely. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty fascinating. I mean, that just goes to show you that even if you have a very high quality late season food source, if you apply even a minimal amount of pressure, they're still not going to tolerate it. Even if the food source is premium,
1: right? Yeah, that, that's valuable information. Survival's for, number one. Yeah, I mean within in, in their world, survival's number one, and then food and reproduction's number two.
0: Now, if we take the predation danger out, what have you found? Whitetails to be willing to travel like on a daily. On a on a daily pattern, I've got some in my area where I'll get pictures of them on one camera, and then literally the next day I've got pictures of them two miles away. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, obviously there's certain times a year where they're maybe trying to figure out where their area is going to be for the rut, or especially once if they're on a doe, they can cover that ground just following the doe for a day, or once it's post rut, they easily covered I would guess three, four or five times that, mm-hmm. um, when they're trying to find those very last does in estrus. But what, what is their, their range that for those types of situations? My
1: personal record. And so there's been a lot of different studies have done. My personal records was, uh, I was tracking a buck and this is when I was in South Texas and he did a, um, gosh, it was like, it was probably less than 12 hours, but he went seven miles. So when you add, if you were to make that 24 hours, and a lot of that's gonna depend on the doe, you know, when does she get into standing heat and, and is she ready to breed? You know, he's gonna chase her as far as she goes. So, but, but I think what you mentioned earlier is probably more typical, two to three miles, maybe three to four miles. Yeah. I think these really long distance, you know, seven miles away, eight miles away or something, that's probably not the norm. What kind of uh, range have you tracked on bucks during the peak rut? Uh, do you mean like daily movement? Yeah, like say
0: or? say a buck that's, you know, the rut's hot and heavy. The bucks are really chasing the does. You know, they, they stay on a doe. They breed a doe. They're moving on. They're covering ground to try to find another one. I mean it's obvious by the end of the rut in our in our part of the midwest a lot of these bucks look like they've lost 30 pounds mm-hmm. you know easily and i mean if you do i know what i need to cover for ground to, you know i know what i'd have to do for a workout to to lose 30 pounds in 3 weeks so
1: i'm just curious what kind of travel range they would have throughout that whole time it's uh i guess it would be difficult it's difficult for me to define that because it would vary a lot about uh you know you would have some that that like we were saying a moment ago over a week um it wouldn't surprise me to have a a 10 to 15 mile round trip Yep. as they traverse different places and again this would be over days right and so they're going from place to place usually going to places where they know that are occupied by does and they're going to be trying to scent check as many as they can, and if there's not any, they're going to keep going. Um, so during the rut, uh, for a dominant buck, I would yeah I would say easily um, in a week's time, 10, 15, or more miles. Yeah, that's crazy. Now, on a dominant
0: buck, from what I've experienced, a lot of my really dominant deer that I've encountered through my years as a hunter, they tend to have what I call like their little breeding areas, their breeding grounds. It seems like when deer get very mature, I've just witnessed bucks that, you know, they'll they'll have a little thicket or they'll have a little, you know, kind of a little thicket in like a depression or something of the terrain where they can run that doe, they corral her in there, they can see around, they feel like they can really fend off other bucks. And I've seen them like hold them there for that day, breed them, and as soon as, that breeding's done they literally like charge out of there they'll just hit the timber they'll just cover ground and as soon as they find one in they just do everything they can to corral her to that exact same spot i mean is that typical for super mature bucks to have their little like you know little
1: breeding bedroom so to speak i think if um If a doe is nearby when that happens, I mean, I don't see him moving her miles away to there. Right. But if it's really close, I could see him steering her, but she's pretty much the boss in that ordeal. Now, a a buck has a lot more um, influence on her maybe to go to there when she's in standing heat. Okay. So it may be forty-eight hours right. or more where she's in estrus, and so that buck is detecting she's cycling, she's getting near, but it may only be you know a, a few hours to where she is receptive, and so and then she's getting ready to to stand, yep. and so then he might be willing to able to steer that direction. What's your thoughts on scents? I mean, do you think there's
0: any type of synthetic scent on the market that would actually trigger, for a, for a mature deer, the same type of response that he would get for a for a doe that was in estrus or in heat coming in. I don't. I don't either. No. <laughs> Everyone always asks me that question. People continually say, "Do you believe in scents or do you believe in drag lines?" Um, I personally don't. I think. Really mature deer are almost hypersensitive to super foreign smells like that. Um, that's been my experience as a hunter. Um, and one one time, a person explained to me, and I'll let you maybe. Do you are you have pretty vast knowledge on like this the actual nasal system of a you know of a whitetail?
1: Have you done I mean, some may, ser- maybe enough just to get in trouble? Okay, but I'll take a stab at it.
0: Okay, I was I was told one time that. A white-tailed deer can actually take a smell like say he s- smelled um a Big Mac mm-hmm. that their nose is actually able to separate all the individual elements of that Big Mac they're not saying oh I smell a Big Mac they smell a wheat bun they smell a sesame seed they smell a Ketchup, they smell. Well, there's no ketchup on a Big Mac, but they're gonna smell the fake cheese. They're gonna the special sauce. The special sauce. They'll smell a pickle within the special sauce. They'll smell. You know, they're gonna. Is that true? The way that their nose can
1: separate an element like that. I, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a nosologist <laughs> on that. But is that a, um, is that a professor term? Ne- yeah, yeah, redneck professor term. <laughs> I may be wrong and I will stand corrected. All right. That to me is a reach. Okay. I think that's a reach. I mean, I I think if, um, I look at it as they have a lot more power and acuity. Mm -hmm. So, or sensitivity might be a better word. So with, so what is scent? Scent's a molecule and it's volatile organic compounds. We say VOCs. They're floating in the air right now. There's, Tens of thousands of VOCs floating in the air right now, and you and I really can't even perceive them. Yeah. This was something really, really strong, but they can. So, but if you have that Big Mac bundled up, I don't know if they can tease apart exactly what it is. I'm sure if you pulled them apart and laid them side by side, they could determine what they were, but. I don't know. That to me, that seemed to be a stretch. What, what the, I would rather say is, whereas you and I could be, we could detect a bit Big Mac five yards away. Man, somebody's got a Big Mac or fries. Yeah, man, it smells good. They could smell it a thousand yards away. What is their What is their their nasal strength in relation to a human's? Like, I wish I had a good number. Um, let me compare it more. What I've Seen in terms of um, their structure and, and their brain and how they perceive it, probably more like a bloodhound. Yep, I um, mean something that that strong. See what I found when it comes to
0: scent prevention or scent elimination, cover scents, all these things. What I found is, I feel like deer have the ability to really know the exact distance of that smell. However, if you minimize that smell, I think that you have a better chance of them not really pinpointing that distance. Um, For example, at my farm, um, a lot of deer will come out within vision of of like my building. And even though I know they're smelling me there, they don't, you know, they can be a few hundred yards away and they may look up every now and then to kind of see what's going on natural activities around the house or whatever but it's like if i got down in a draw and snuck halfway to them and then all of a sudden my wind switched there they'll instantly know the difference between having sent it 200 yards versus having sent it 100 yards so they've established that i've always thought that if i can reduce my overall contamination scent mm-hmm. or minimize it i don't i personally don't think you can ever eliminate it i don't know i've done a lot of um have you ever dealt with ozone at all have you guys played with ozone we have not this is i actually want to get you one to play with this it's pretty fascinating so the concept is um there's a machine called ozonics mm-hmm. it produces ozone and the ozone molecule likes to attach to molecules right so it actually changes the makeup of that which makes it harder for a deer to process. Um, Both of the deer that I shot this year were both downwind of me. Um, Several years ago I tried one of these machines, one of the very first ones and I wasn't successful using it. Now this year um, my buddy in Oklahoma used it and shot a deer directly downwind of them there and I couldn't believe it so I he actually came out with me the next day to film me we put some of these above us so it kind of casts ozone like an ozone blanket so to speak Mm -hmm. over your scent molecules it gets tricky when the wind is variable or if the wind is strong because you know if if things are consistent and slow you can position it to where it's it's covering you properly but we had similar effects on my hunt. So I ended up going back and I ended up buying two of them. I have one of them that I put in this like closet. I keep all my clothes in this small little closet and I put it in there. It's nice because I can put my bow in there, my camera, my tripod, my backpack. So for me as a whitetail hunter, I always felt like scent elimination was an impossibility because, you know, I I could never like I didn't want to spray down my camera or, you know, in a lot of these a lot of them, a lot of the products out there were like, you know, like baking soda is a good scent neutralizer, but I don't think it really changes the makeup of that scent. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? So I don't think it was ever truly effective. And I don't really believe in cover scents either because I just know that my dog can determine so many different types of smells that aren't truly accurate. I mean, if I think if like Hunter's specialty made A uh, dog biscuit scent wafer I don't think my dog would really want to eat it you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I've had times where I've bought scent elimination suits like carbon suits and things and I'll do everything it says spray myself down I'll do everything and then I've left my house I've walked up into my woods several hundred yards and then I would call back and I'd tell my wife okay let the dog out because the dog knows I'm out there and Shades wants to know where I'm at And I've never had a clothing product, like a scent containment product, or like a scent elimination spray, to where my dog could not find me. So I'm certain that if if a lab can find me, there's no doubt that a deer Mm -hmm. is probably, arguably, going to be even more acute to that. A hog, a good test. A hog would be much. I would, you know, Mm -hmm. what? How much stronger do you, or how much? Uh, more powerful as a hog's nose
1: the sense of smell versus a whitetail's I think they're pretty similar Um, of course I think a hog's is more it it could be I I think they're more uh, probably sensitive into things below ground uh, they just seem to be able to, to tune into things that they can smell again up to literally three feet below ground. Well, it's probably the way their nose is shaped. It's, it, I mean, it's perfectly
0: round, right? It's like mm-hmm. a suction thing. It pushes against the ground, and you're sucking something up through two holes. Yeah. So, I mean, the way their nose is designed, it's really designed to smell through something when it's pressed down flat on it.
1: Yeah, uh, pulling air through the soil. Right, and, right. And extracting that. Right, right.
0: Um, well, this ozone, it's been pretty impressive. I can't, I don't want to tell all my listeners that it's a hundred percent because I, you know, there were certainly days where I did get smelled when I had it, but I take it every day. Yeah. I mean, I almost, I'm almost curious to know, um, if you do some of these studies, it would kind of be interesting to have that and see if
1: you could give me the same types of results. It'd be worth a try. We did a study. <clears throat> excuse me. We did a study to look at um, just all the different chemicals that we, as a human, we exude. And so we got with a uh, chemist, a bona fide professional chemist that does this stuff for a living, and and um, we constructed the suits and that basically held all of our uh, scent inside the suit, and then we had this device. Like
0: like one of the big sumo suits,
1: (laughs) pretty much. (laughs) It's Think of a rain suit, but it had elastic at the feet and elastic right here, just so everything you were producing stayed in there. And then there was a tube went into the suit and sucked it out and pulled it into their machine and charted all the different. And the the chemist immediately could say, that person drank last night, that person had such and such last night. Just from all the different compounds that just we're dissipated consuming. out yeah yep. yeah and what impressed me about that is that it's really really complicated and speaking to your point about scent elimination i don't think there's any such thing as elimination there may be some masking there may be some fooling and some tricking and reduction yep. um, but i don't see how and even think of your breath well, yeah. So, your, I mean, it goes your on Your breath and, and your produce. butt are two are <laughs> <Smelly. laughs> hot spots.
0: <laughs> yeah, luckily we haven't changed the molecules in the room here today. Our, our food's been pretty darn good. Um, I would love for you to ask that chemist um, about ozone. Maybe get back to me. And then um, I'm curious to know if... If those different things that are exuding out of our skin and our pores naturally if ozone chemically could actually um, do what it says I mean I'm curious because um, obviously in the outdoor industry a lot of times um, marketing is is kind of the over you know the the powers that uh, overpower our brains you know they try to outmarket our natural mm-hmm. ability to just have um just basic common sense but stuff like that for me and what i'm doing it's really fascinating because like some of these things that you talked about with hogs or deer the problem is there's so many variables you know you could do your study that you do down in mississippi and you know the mississippi delta i know that you know on our place our family's place down in south of natchez um, those deer are they're just not going to have a pattern similar to the pattern of what it's like when you hunt the Midwest. And then, you know, when I go and hunt Alberta, Mm -hmm. the types of patterns are substantially different behavioral patterns too. Um, Even things as small as, you know, down in the South, if you're going to hunt a whitetail, you better be 20 foot plus in a tree. I mean, and that's, 20 a lot of people would think you were low really low (laughs) yeah yeah i had a guy tell me one time i said well how high do i climb and he just said well just stop before you go out the top of one of those trees (laughs) (laughs) yeah but um so growing up in mississippi uh, i actually feel like i'm a better hunter because i got my foundation to hunting in mississippi where i believe I believe Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama are probably among the smartest whitetails. Mm-hmm. The, I mean, um, I had a friend come deer hunting with me this year, and it was his first time ever hunting. And I was trying to explain to him just how like good whitetails are about you know mature deer, mature bucks. A lot of times they'll move to an area where they're super comfortable that they've scanned it enough, but then they'll just stop and they'll scan. I mean, it's very rare that a, that a mature buck just kind of lingers into an area and then all of a sudden, you know, if you make a big movement, then he's going to be like, oh, crap. I mean, a lot of times those deer have stared at that area that you're in for long before you've ever seen them. And um, down in Mississippi, I just learned that when it comes to Sitting in a stand, always having your back to the tree, you know, always finding cover within that tree. You know, sometimes it was higher than others, but you have to have that background cover. But then, um, and then obviously sensitivity to sound, all that down and and reaction time. Like mm-hmm. the reaction time of a whitetail in Mississippi is probably double what it is in Iowa. And Iowa's probably double what what it is in Alberta. I've been on hunts in Alberta where I've been in stands that are 10 feet off the ground and the deer do not look up. They don't look at you there. Whereas in Mississippi, I'd venture to say a deer would see me 400 yards away if I was 10 foot off the ground. I mean, they would. They could come out at the far end of a of a food plot and be looking right at you and
1: know something's wrong. Right? And know something's different.
0: Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And actually, that was that's a good point because my buddy that I was just talking with, um, he got down out of the tree. We were going to hunt all day, but he got down um, about. I told him we need to sit till one thirty. He ended up getting down at one twenty eight or one twenty nine, and when he got to the bottom of the tree. I just because there was a ridge on the skyline, I kind of saw something on the skyline. So I pulled my binoculars up and I started focusing. And I thought I saw there's a buck there. And he was looking our way, and I could tell how intent he was looking. He was going to come. So I kind of whistled down and I just said, Don't move. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, I was giving him like the buck. You know, there's a buck over there. And I said, I, I said, um, And then when I saw the deer start to move and get behind some trees, I said, get your bow, and I said, get behind the tree. And sure enough, this buck started coming. And I mean, as soon as that deer got to where he could see, and I mean, and he was tight to the tree, but it's amazing to me that whitetail know every single leaf, low hanging branch, a cluster of acorns, anything, I mean, I've had times where I've, I've dropped a hat and I've had deer walk through and like just stare at this hat hanging on a branch mm-hmm. where it's like dangling halfway down and they're not smelling it. They're just, they know every single nook and cranny in that timber that well to where they're like, wait a minute, what's that?
1: Yep, something's different.
0: Yep. Yeah. Um. Well, I don't know how long we're sitting here. 47 minutes. We're getting close. Is there anything you want to talk about?
1: Let me catch you up if if it's okay. We'll tell you about some of our research projects. Oh, yeah. uh, should have talked about that first. Heck, maybe (laughs) a few months or a year from now we can touch base again, and I'll tell you all our conclusions. But we've got a few going on now with with deer. Um, We're looking at – we're doing a food plot study, but it's not your run-of-the-mill food plot study. We're looking at – not only what do deer eat in terms of agronomic plantings, your typical food plot mixes, oats, wheat, you know, brassicas, clovers, is we're trying to figure out not necessarily what they eat, but why they're eating it. Yep. and so we're doing. We call them cafeteria studies, meaning we're going to have all these different forages side by side, mm-hmm. and we're going to have an electric fence around them. We're going to let those forages grow until they're, you know, until enough growth is there to to let the fence down. We're going to let the fences down, and then we're going to have uh, cameras on every single forage. Yep. and so we're going to know what they're preferring. But simultaneously, we're measuring the natural vegetation, all the natural deer forages that are being produced. So we're trying to figure out what nutrients they are seeking. So we don't just want to know. I mean, we want to know this, too. You know, do they want the white clover or the red clover or the crimson clover? We want to know why. Are they selecting the phosphorus amount in it? Is it the crude protein or is it the greater digestible energy? Depends S- on the time of year. It it will depend. Oh, yeah. you're pulling the. It depends on me now. Is that- <laughs> Heck yeah,
0: man. I I can tell you. I know. I know enough about deer. And actually, my buddy EJ and my other buddy Preston, mm-hmm. they are geeked out on this exact subject. I need to. I actually need to hook you up with them. They're they're um, they're devoting an incredible amount of time to. Coming up with to come up with products to where they've already done some studies on this to where they know exactly what deer are craving during each cycle of the year mm-hmm. because it is different. Um,
1: but here's what it depends on as well. It depends on what's available. I don't think it does. I think it does. Okay, I'm going to tell you why I disagree. Okay. So
0: um, if you put out protein feed, salt, and corn all year long, There'll be certain times of year, mainly during antler growth, where they're gonna hit that protein ridiculously hard and they will favor it over the corn. But then when there's um, once that velvet comes off and they heat they hit like peak antler maturity, um, they'll immediately start to leave that protein there and then seek things that maybe taste better because obviously their body's craving something different. But I've had places where there's acorns on the ground all year long, but certain times of year they don't eat it, even though a lot of people say that's preferred food. It is, yeah. Um, Also, I've had times where, at least with my food plots, there's times where they hit certain a certain plant during one particular part of its cycle, but then they'll obviously wait until it changes. You know, like brassicas, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. But that'll be a cool study. I do need to hook you up with my buddy EJ and Preston. They've got some, um, they're actually working on a company called, um, Garland Animal Wellness. And this is, uh, They've been really talking to me about this. I'm getting really geeked out on it because mm-hmm. um, my buddy EJ is a former golf pro, and he's been he's devoted an incredible amount of time to this. Could be pretty cool. Yeah, I could. Um, and actually, he loves test studies. Okay. So if you're wanting to do some test studies um, outside of your range in Mississippi, these are going to be the guys. Preston's got a, um, a phenomenal place in Mexico. EJ's got places in, throughout the Midwest and also in um, Oklahoma that he can do some test studies on. But that's That'd pretty be great. Yeah, that would be awesome. I've had times where I've done that. I've put food plots to where I'll make one pass with winter wheat. I'll make one pass with purple tops and make one pass with the forage radish, make one mm-hmm. pass, you know, with just a straight red clover. And... You can notice this a lot with, especially like with Milo, like with Milo, there comes a time where when they hit that, they'll like knock the tops out of every one of them. Like they won't stop till it's gone. But one thing on that same subject, um, maybe you can touch on this. I've got a lot of friends to where, um, and it seems like turnips is one of them. Seems like there's people that will plant turnips and just like at my at, at my different farms I hunt in Iowa purple top turnips they will wear them out but I've also had farms that are 30 miles away from there where they just will not touch purple tops they'll just stay they just stay in the ground it's almost like they don't even know how to eat them or mm-hmm. or what to do with them you know it's they almost it almost seems like they've never been trained on what that actually is. So have you ever had much Mm -hmm. experience with that? Well, why does that happen? Where certain demographics that will, because obviously deer like radish, they like that type
1: of forage. Right. So why would it work in one place, but not another? Here's what we think. And that brings back that very question we were talking about is, why are they selecting this forage over that forage? is because what we think that is driving that is what is available in the environment. So I would explain your scenario one of two ways. Um, Maybe it's simply because for whatever reason, maybe it's a low deer density and the deer haven't, there's been other foods, more preferable foods. Um, There hasn't been that one or two deer that have actually done it, experienced, uh, you know, working with a bull, pulling it out of the ground. Because yep. a lot of this behavior is passed on from deer to deer and from doe to fawn and things like that. You'll see that a lot of times with different food plots where year one, deer didn't really touch it. Yep. Year two, they started hitting it. Year three, they, you couldn't get it out of the ground. So they do have this memory of, of what's going on with that. So I would say, it's just an educated guess, that no experience, the particular deer 30 miles away, no experience with it for whatever reason. And until one of them um, tries it and has a good experience and they say, hey, what's Susie doing over there? Let's go join in. Yeah. And then they'll experience it and then they'll remember it next year. They'll associate that food and that smell and they'll go back to it. Or possibly in that area, there is another food, whether it be agronomic or natural, that is satisfying that particular nutrient supplied by the turnip. Yeah. It's not limited to them. Yeah, your soil type—you could be—it could be, it could be drawn interactions a, with soil. Absolutely, could be drawing a
0: different mineral out. Well, cool, man. I appreciate it. Now, we need to talk about this because I was trying to convince you to do a podcast because you got a lot of these cool studies. Um, obviously, I've got. Well, sorry for any of you target archers that were listening to this podcast saying, "What the hell?" This used to be an archery podcast. Well, guess what? It's my podcast, and if I want to geek out on hog snouts and, and radishes and, and deer, then I get to do that every now and then. But um, I told you, you need to get your podcast going. So have you figured out what you're going to name that sucker?
1: It's going to be called Deer U for Deer University. And um, we're going to have all sorts of stuff just like we talked about today. Perfect. It's it's what we call it is science and management. So we're going to come up with all these different management topics. Moon theory. Do you need to hunt the moon? Hell what is yeah, the you uh, There's going to be a podcast about that. I better be on it. <laughs> Let me get in on that. I'm a uh, happy, I'm a moon geek. All right, we're going to have to talk about that. Let's, Let's talk about it right now.
0: Well, no no, fighting, no no no, that's what? not how it works. Oh, see, yeah. I've got
1: to drive people to my where, where I interview you then. All you right. See? So for Dear You,
0: um episode 1, he's going to school my ass on all my moon phase theories. I don't know. I'm I'm I think that moon affects a lot of stuff in this world.
1: It do, it affects the tides. I don't know. I think it yeah. it affects when I shoot big bucks. Maybe because you believe in the moon theory and you hunt more during that particular time and you put more time into mm, some... No, it's not a placebo. So you're doing a random sample, equal I'm, amount of effort I'm pretty
0: all random. these days? I'm pretty much in a tree 13 hours a day for 30 days, and I pretty okay. much kill on very similar moon phases. Right. And I track movement very much according to the way the moon comes up. Rises and falls. Okay. But I want to be in on that. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. It doesn't have to be number one. You might have like a best friend from like Mississippi that you need on episode one. I'll I'll come in later on when you kind of run out of your buddies to call. That's what'll happen. See, you do a podcast. Everyone's like geeked out to talk to you for a while, and then all of a sudden you say, "Hey, man, you, you want to do a podcast?" I'm sleeping today. Yeah. So.
1: Or they just block your call altogether.
0: I haven't had I don't think I've had that yet,
1: well, you don't know. We just rang and yeah, answered. I guess so. Well, well, here's the deal, so I you've got know. you've got your data. um, yep. I guess you the rut's over in Iowa, right? You're done in Iowa. well, tomorrow gun season
0: opens, so it's good that we're in here talking right now. I was debating playing Russian roulette. <laughs> 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 I, I'm sitting here hmm. thinking freaking gun season opens tomorrow. I don't I I don't have a problem with gun hunters. I like gun hunters. I just uh man, can they mow them down? They sure can. I'm kind of a kind of a one two and done type of hunter. Mm-hmm. I really like to pick the biggest deer and then, you know, occasional doe. I like to hunt public ground for does too or ask people, you know, a lot of times farmers around me will be like, "Man, I got to get rid of some of these does." But um I don't know I've if you never, need
1: someone from Mississippi, by the way, that needs to come up and get rid of some doves. Yeah, Mississippi I'm boys good. can put some serious stuff down. We eat a lot of venison. Well, <laughs> if, yeah.
0: if they gave every non resident Iowa tag to a bunch of Mississippi boys, we Wouldn't would be any deer in Iowa. <laughs> we would be done. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, here's no my doubt. challenge. So okay. I want
1: you to think, do you keep records of what you see? So you You're have like some the fourth data. person today that's talked
0: to me about stories in my life, and you're like, you need to document this stuff. I just remember it. I can't remember Ooh. people's like names or phone numbers, but I can dang sure remember what I've experienced
1: in my life if I have a bow in my hand. All right, we got a perfect experiment here. <clears throat> so I'm going to challenge you. We're going to have to wait a year. I'm going to challenge you. Okay. We have an app. That was something I meant to talk about anyway. Okay. We have an app called Deer Hunt.
0: Deer Hunt.
1: Deer Hunt. You can get it right there on your Android gonna, or iPhone. Okay, I'm going to load it. Deer Hunt okay keep talking and what it does is you record observation data oh and so you can load where you're at your stand you can create a property your stand um you can do this for a hunting club or you can do it as an individual hunter deer hunt okay do do msu like mississippi state university msu deer hunt okay because there's a lot of deer words on the app store
0: yeah, who in MSU is gonna be selling all my data? There you go. <laughs> is that it? That's it. So, for those of you listening,
1: it's actually MSUEs. Extension Deer hunt. yeah I'm sorry. yeah. Mississippi State University Extension Service Deer Hunt. MSUEs. That's too Deer long hunt. of a name, man. Someone. I mean,
0: you guys need to. Deer hunt is too long of a name. Yeah, you should have just named it like Redneck Docks or something. <laughs> <laughs> Yankee, my deer, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So once I log all this in, all the Mississippi, um, all the Mississippi hunters are going to know where I hunt. What no, no, time. no.
1: Nobody sees your data. <laughs> Come only on now, tell the truth. It's password protected. Okay. Well. Yeah, password. Only you see your data. My password is... Is what? Yeah, let me know. Redneck. Okay. So if you document on there all the days you hunt, and you start seeing a spike in deer activity, that would be an objective way for you to go back and compare when you saw spikes. And so you can record the number of does you see, the number of bucks you see, young bucks, middle-aged bucks, mature bucks, antler configurations, all your data. Anything that you would write down in a log... Can be recorded right there. And I need it, to get you a picture of a bigger deer for the front of that thing. We're not. We're not. We're not, like we're not one, all about trophy management now.
0: Just, I know. I just. But I, I think I would open it more if there was like a one ninety
1: looking at me. <laughs> 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 but no, this looks cool, and I will do that. Um, and then we're going to compare your data. So we're going to take what you think. Here's what I know is going on because I've got it recorded up here. Yeah. Then we're going to compare it objectively to what you did see and recorded. And then we can also compare it with our buck movement study we have going on. We're going to be starting next spring. So we'll have all the moon phases in the fall of 2017. And the GPS collars on those bucks ought to verify what you're saying. Yeah, the problem is... The Mississippi
0: deer get chased so much they don't think about the moon. They think about when it's pitch ass black. Yeah. Then they move. So You need to, why do those Iowa bucks care about the moon? Well, I don't think it's just Iowa. I think deer that aren't like super pressured and it's not necessarily bucks, it's general deer movement. I just really find that my better deer movements are prior to full moon, but they also the the movement really happens at a certain position when the moon is on the sky. I think there's a certain part where from 20 degrees to 40 degrees, a lot of the deer are moving at those same times. And the other thing too is, you know, as a hunter, I'm in communication, especially during the rut, with a lot of people in our industry. Like, you know, I'll be a day in the stand, I'll be texting, t-bone or i'll be texting ralph and vicky or you know i mean, i'm texting i'll text lee and see what he and tiff are seeing i mean i'm texting these people that are all over and it's amazing to me um and even actually even when i was down on my hunt down in oklahoma there was five of us out on a massive ranch and we could go hours without seeing anything and all of a sudden one person in the group would say just saw a doe and then all of a sudden it's just like within five minutes every person is seeing deer so something mm-hmm. has to be triggering it you don't think it has to do with lunar
1: i don't what do you think it is see you tricked me you baited me into it here we said we were going to talk about this later that's simple i just um, don't think a deer that is governed by what we say is governed by reproduction and is governed by food why does it care about the position of the moon? A deer is going to eat every single day. Yep. Except for maybe a butt during the peak of the rut when he's looking for a girlfriend. Deer is going to eat every single day. They're going to eat multiple times every single day. So this deer goes, God, I'm hungry. I'm starving. <laughs> Moon's not right. I guess I'm going to stay bedded for a little bit longer.
0: Well, that's different. Him, <laughs> him actually getting up to eat versus... Main travel times, like when it comes to bulk movement, I mean there there's times where I'll, if a fawn is bedded fairly, or you know, or even a doe is bedded fairly close to a food plot, they'll show up multiple times during the day. Mm-hmm. But there's also times where once deer start moving, they're all moving, so all their
1: stomachs aren't on the same schedule. I just think do you think yeah, they are well but there certainly i mean all the studies demonstrate that there's individual variation some deer do a little bit different than the others but the peaks are the peaks it is dawn and dusk is when a deer is programmed to do a majority of their their feeding that's when feeding so have you never spur? had
0: times where you drive through different places that you're hunting and at two o'clock you can see
1: deer out feeding through a magnitude of different areas. Mm-hmm. But was it the time that I was riding through? Or are you saying two o'clock in the morning? No, let's just say in two, the afternoon? like
0: sometimes I've had it where there's a, a, uh, a magnitude of movement in the middle of the day at a certain time. And then the switch cuts off. And I think sometimes deer move a lot, you know, and trail cameras show it. Yeah. You know, they'll move... There's times where the bulk movement of deer is after daylight. There's a time where bulk movement is before daylight. I found that the mass amounts of pre-sunset movement is prior to full moons, when the full moon is rising one to two hours before dark, or if the moon is falling on the horizon, depending on the moon phase, prior to dark. But when the moon really starts to come up after dark... The deer, the deer movement is a lot heavier after dark, and it's also a lot heavier middle of the morning the following day. That's what I found through well, let's test, 30 years. Let's test it. We're going to do it. Okay, people, we're going to end at that. Dear You is going to be the podcast when he gets this thing rolling. I've got a, well... Somehow or another, after being out of school for 20 years, I just got homework. <laughs> I literally got homework. I gotta, gotta log in my deer hunt. Um, so this is M, It was um, MSU was ES it? ES deer hunt. Deer hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that just lets you pretty much keep like an online journal. That's right. Which is super cool. Um, actually, a friend of mine that I met. Um, years ago. His name is Gary Clancy. um, Just a brilliant outdoor writer. Lives in Minnesota, Rochester, Minnesota. Um, I actually met him on a trip to do a Monster Bucks uh, filming with Realtree. And this was Monster Bucks 10, just to tell you how old I am. But um, he's kept a journal every day of his life. Every single day. So... We need to talk to him about that too. Sure. And my sure. buddy Thomas did. Um, my buddy Thomas was the uh, the same what same way. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Shake your hand. That was awesome. Loved it. I learned some stuff about hogs. Learned some stuff about deer. And uh, I actually had a decent debate with a someone that's got some serious education on this stuff. <laughs> so um, and ask your chemist about oil with about my ozone i want to know know if if that's a ozone or ozone so thanks everybody for tuning in appreciate it and uh hope you enjoy the weekend i'll try to get this loaded up for you here pretty quick but thanks everybody knock on be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com